staple in my childhood that probably was the cause of this. And so for those of you that missed out on this as well, I'd like to share with you a clip to clear some things up. As long as this king's in his bath, everything's ducky. Because I love my duck. He has everything a king could want. No, 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 I'm happy. Until he spies what someone else has got. It's beautiful. I must have it, I must get it, you must go and get it for me. If you want me to be happy, then you'll show me you adore me. How far will he go to have it all? Put Thomas at the front of the battle. But he'll be... And what will happen when he learns he's gone too far? What do I do? What do I do? VeggieTales, King George and the Ducky on video and DVD, including the classic silly song, Endangered Love. Barbara Manatee, you are the one for me. From the studios of Big Idea. So the last 20 seconds or so of that wasn't super relevant, but who doesn't love a silly song? Uh, <laughs> and to clarify, the story in scripture is not about a rubber duck, but the rest of the story pretty much checks out. David was a king, and when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, he decided that he had to have her. So he slept with her and then had her husband Uriah move to the front of the lines so that he would be killed in battle. And that's a pretty terrible thing to do, right? But who is this David guy? Like, what does it matter that he did this? David was raised as a shepherd boy, and he was appointed to be king even though he was the youngest of his brothers. He also was the same man that fought and killed Goliath, who scripture says was over nine feet tall, with only a slingshot and some stones. Then a bunch of other stuff happened, and eventually he became king. So what does this mean? David was referred to as a man after God's own heart. He had been serving the Lord all of his life, and there was no reason for him to think that God wouldn't have provided for him. He had all along. And then he goes and does this. What this means is that this story is either David's breaking point, kind of like Britney Spears shaving her head, or it's just a really great comeback story that makes David 100% more relatable and also really awesome. So we're going to pick up this story after all of this goes down with Bathsheba. They're now married and um, have a child together, and her husband Uriah is dead. This is 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 
Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Now, is David just a little slow, or does he really not see that this man in the story is him? It seems so clear that he should be guilty and instantly relate to the story, but I think that we should give him a little bit of credit. In the scripture, this comes right after the story of him and Bathsheba, but it's been at least nine months since this has happened because they're married now and have a child together. Now, I'm not saying that over this time, David's just forgotten everything that he's done. But I do think that that's plenty of time for him to justify it, for him to become desensitized or numb to his sin. And he might have even thought, well, if it's been this long and God hasn't punished me, he must not care that much that I did it in the first place. It's really easy for us to look at this story and to think, how was David not just racked with guilt? And I think the reason that we feel that way is because we don't want to admit that we justify sin ourselves all the time. Even saying this about David is kind of justifying our own sin. It's like saying, what David did was so big, so bad, how could he not feel so guilty? I haven't sinned like that. I've never killed anyone. I've never slept with anyone's wife. We look for so many ways to justify our sin. We compare ourselves to others and look for any excuse to belittle the things that we've done so that we can see ourselves as good people. What I think is really beautiful about this story is that it has a turning point, but it's not necessarily in huge actions or life change. There is change, and it comes in two parts. So we're going to continue reading at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood outside him, stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? 
While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. As soon as David says, I've sinned against the Lord, everything changes. And yet, nothing has. At this point in the story, David can't do anything to change what he's done. Bathsheba's his wife now. Uriah is dead. He can't do anything to make what he's done better or change it in any way. But he admits that he's done something wrong and that he needs God. And Nathan replies and says, The Lord has forgiven your sin. You are not going to die. He accepts responsibility and also the consequences of his sin. He prays and fasts to try and save his son, but once he actually passes, he accepts that that's what was in God's will, and he moves on with his life. And people think that that is crazy because it is so hard for us to accept the consequences of our sin. How many of you in this room are the oldest of your siblings? Me too. I am six years older than my brother, so when we were little, there was a point when I was stronger than him, but probably not anymore. Um, So when I was about nine and he was three, I could definitely take him. I remember once that we were sitting on the couch together just watching TV, and he did or said something that made me really mad, so I just kind of shoved him off the couch. And I'm convinced he was not really hurt by that, but he wanted to get me in trouble. So he starts crying, and my mom comes running. And I try to deny it, but who's my mom going to believe? Her ornery nine-year-old or her three-year-old that's laying on the floor and crying? Now, I know that it's easy to come up with examples from our childhood of not wanting to accept the responsibility and the consequences of the things we've done wrong. But I think this is something that we do today as well, even now that we're older especially when we can convince ourselves that what we've done was really not that bad. Because if we accept it, accept responsibility, that means we also have to accept these consequences that we don't think we deserve. Because I didn't think that my brother was hurt, it was super easy for me to deny it. But it really wasn't a nice thing to do, so I probably should have fessed up. David has another part of his change as well, though. He also accepts grace. And while accepting responsibility and consequences of our sin is a challenge, accepting grace is something that always has been a lot harder for me. There is one situation that this has become really clear in my own life, but it requires a little bit of backstory to explain. I've known that I was being called into ministry since my sophomore year of high school. And because of that, I've always felt like I needed to be this perfect Christian girl that had her life all together and never made mistakes. But I do make mistakes. A lot, actually. And then my senior year of high school, I started dating this guy that wasn't a Christian. So I became the girl that told everyone she was going to be a pastor and then just hoped that my relationship didn't come up in conversation. Now, throughout this relationship, I did a lot of justifying. I told myself things like, 
maybe I can help him come to know God. Or maybe if I listen to all of his hang-ups about Christianity, I can understand them better and be able to share my faith more clearly with people that are not Christians. All of these things were constantly running through my mind, trying to convince me that this relationship was okay. But the truth was that I had just started to believe the lies that he had been telling me the whole time we were together. Not so much with words, but with actions. That he needed me, but it didn't really matter when I needed him. That I should drop everything to help him when he needed it, or that I should care for him really well because it's what Christ asks of us. But I shouldn't expect that of him. That I needed to move along with him physically so that he wouldn't leave and I would have time to share my faith with him. That it didn't matter that he was mean to his family and friends because he was nice to me most of the time. That it didn't matter that he wasn't a Christian because we made each other happy. That we made each other happy. I spent a lot of time in this relationship crying and praying to God that my boyfriend would come to know him and that he would change. And then I would justify it and move on. But I hated the person I was when I was with him. I convinced myself that he helped me let loose and that we did things together that were fun and exciting and that I never would have done if we hadn't dated. But I was miserable. All the while, I just tried to convince to the world that we were this perfect couple that had everything together, such happy people. And lucky for me, my roommate saw through that and confronted me about it. She was my Nathan. And like David, at first I couldn't accept all that I had done. I couldn't accept that I had started to care more about what my boyfriend thought of me than I did about living my life for and with God. I couldn't accept that I had done things with him physically that I just really regretted. I couldn't accept that God had sent me endless signs that I shouldn't be in this relationship, and I just straight up ignored them. But as we talked about it more, I started to be willing to accept responsibility for these things and move towards accepting the consequences. Breaking up with him meant that I had to admit to myself and to everyone that I had justified this relationship to, that I had been wrong. And I was scared about that. I was really worried of what people would think of me. I was worried that God would choose not to use me anymore because I had lost my credibility. I was worried that I was unlovable, both by true friends and in romantic relationships. But as soon as we broke up, I almost instantly felt like I could be myself again. That I didn't have to be that person that I hated when I was with him. And it didn't make sense to me at all. But those consequences that I fully expected to happen just didn't. I had kind friends who cared for me, accepted me in my brokenness, and pointed me towards Christ. I met a great guy that loves the Lord and actually lives his life like he does. God let me work for crew, doing ministry full-time, and he even let me be on the stage giving this talk tonight. But as I continued to be blessed over and over, 
hurt. Because I always had this voice in the back of my head that said, you don't deserve this. You're not worthy of these things. Why you? After all that you've done, Accepting grace is something that's really hard for me. And even though I knew that God forgived me, I still had this guilt that was just constantly present in my heart. Shortly after I broke up with my boyfriend, I found out that David wrote a psalm, Psalm 51, right around the time that he had had this conversation with Nathan. And it has continued to be the chapter that I come back to any time these thoughts creep back into my mind when I feel unworthy or unlovable. And I'd love to share all of it with you tonight, but for the sake of time, I'm going to jump around a little bit. But I'll start in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. As I read this chapter, verse 12 is one that always stands out to me. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This has been a verse that has been my prayer countless times. It's been my prayer to say, God, remind me why your gospel is good news, that I don't deserve to be forgiven, but you've chosen to forgive me and love me anyway. It's been my, been my prayer to say, give me strength to resist temptation. It's been my prayer to say, motivate me to do your work. It's been my prayer to say, help me find joy when I just can't find it on my own. And it's been my prayer to say, convince me that you've forgiven me, even when I struggle to forgive myself. Because really, forgiving myself has been the hardest part of accepting grace for me all along. I hold myself to really high standards. And I've tried to be this perfect person all my life. And so now that I'm not, I don't know how to accept that. When I think about grace and how it's so undeserved, I always have this question in the back of my mind of, why would God set up all of these rules for us? these things that we should and shouldn't do if our salvation is not based on how well we follow them. Something that my pastor said last Sunday was really helpful for me in understanding the answer to this question. He said, Our reason for not going out is sinning 
and sinning is the same as the reason we don't stick our hand in a wood chipper. It hurts. So it might sound kind of silly, but I think a lot of times we convince ourselves that God has created this list of do's and don'ts just so that he can watch us fail at following them or give us something to work on throughout our life. And that's just 100% not true. God has set up this system, these things that we should avoid and things that we should do, because sin hurts us. It hurts us, it hurts others, and it hurts God because he loves us and hates to see us hurting. But some sins are a lot easier to see the hurt in than others. If you stick your hand in a wood chipper, chances are you're going to notice right away. But if you get a little scrape on your hand, just as you're going about your day, um, you might not notice it right away or even feel the pain until you've looked down and see the blood or someone else points it out to you. And then once you notice it, it hurts. I've been walking around my whole life with what I thought were just these little cuts. And when I would notice one, I would just patch it up myself, try to make myself this perfect person to bring before God and convince him that I was worthy of his love. And it wasn't until I had pointed out to me this huge gash in my life that I had no hope of fixing on my own that I realized that's not what God ever wanted from me from the beginning. He doesn't want us to come to him as perfect, patched-up people proving ourselves to him. He wants us to come in our brokenness, in our hurt, coming to him and saying, I've sinned and I need you. That's why he sent his son to live a perfect life in our place. He knew we wouldn't be perfect. He sent Christ to die on the cross and to take the punishment for the sins he knew we would commit. Christ died this death that he 100% did not deserve so that we could receive grace that we don't deserve. God wants you to come in your brokenness. And it saddens me that it took me straying away this far to realize that that was true. I hope that that's not true of you. But if it is, if it does take that, or it already has, I want you to know that God wants to forgive you. He wants to call you back to himself and to love you. He wants to heal your hurt and to hurt with you. He's already made the sacrifice that allows you to accept grace. You just have to accept. Yes, you have to accept responsibility and the consequences, but you also have to accept grace that he's just waiting to overwhelm you with. David is a really great example of how to handle sin when we're confronted with it. He realizes he's broken that he can't do anything to fix it, and he turns to God for help. He accepts. He accepts responsibility, he accepts the consequences, and he accepts grace. And that's what we should do, too. David wrote another psalm, Psalm 32, right around the same time. And the purpose of it is to express the joy of being forgiven. 
And so I'd love to share it with you tonight as our closing prayer. And as I do, the band is welcome to come on up. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, I can't read in the dark. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all who are upright in heart. Amen. <laughs>